Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, sure, the United States has been conducting the census for some two centuries now, but Donald Trump and his cronies have a new idea of how to do it that involves no points for guessing, screwing it up entirely in service to a racist nativist project, using methods that are, yes, unconstitutional, but can still have an impact anyway, leaving everyone who knows anything about the census or statistics or democracy shaking their damn heads. We'll talk about the White House's transparent campaign to sabotage the 2020 census with civil rights attorney Liz O'Young. That's coming up, but first, a look back at recent press. Since the police murder of George Floyd, protesters for racial justice have again mobilized across the country and attracted what counts for serious attention from media commentators. But while corporate media talk about the country reckoning with or engaging the white supremacy and racist police violence the uprisings are protesting, that hasn't meant they were genuinely interested in changing the conversation around those issues. How can you tell? It's based not on who shows up in background video footage or person-on-the-street soundbites, but when it's time to talk about meaning, who gets to speak? So Loretta Graceffo, a fair intern and correspondent for Waging Nonviolence, looked at whose voices were featured in some of the most prominent and influential outlets and wrote it up for FAIR.org. Graceffo's count included columnists in the Washington Post and New York Times editorial sections, as well as people interviewed on network Sunday morning political talk shows, including ABC's This Week, CBS's Face the Nation, CNN's State of the Union, Fox News Sunday, and NBC's Meet the Press. And establishment media overwhelmingly turned to columnists, pundits, and government officials for interpretation of the uprisings, rather than to the activists facing tear gas on the front lines. So protesters were denied the chance to present their demands in their own words, and the voices of those most impacted by police brutality went unheard. The opinion columns of the Times and the Post were dominated by vague calls for justice and reform, mainly from neoliberal elites. In the three weeks after George Floyd's murder, May 25th to June 16th, the Washington Post published 89 op-eds discussing race, policing, and the uprisings at length. Some of the articles had more than one author, so it added up to 97 authors altogether. Of those, 61% were columnists for The Post. 39% were outside writers. Breaking down those outside writers... Current or former government officials were 34 percent, academics another 30 percent, and 18 percent were freelance journalists. Sixteen percent of the Post's guest writers worked in the criminal justice system, including the civil rights attorney for the Floyd family and Marilyn Mosby, the state's attorney for Baltimore. There were also a former federal prosecutor, a public defender, a police officer, and a former deputy chief of police, along with one writer whose father owns a restaurant that caught fire during the protest. 
In the same three weeks, the New York Times published 83 op-eds discussing George Floyd and the protests, with a total of 87 writers. 56% of those were Times columnists. 44% were outside sources. Of those outside sources, 37% were academics, 24% freelancers, and 18% current or former government officials. 5% of those outside sources were people in the criminal justice system, Marilyn Mosby again, another chief of police, and then 5%, in fact, were activists. So the upshot is, across both major papers, in a total of 172 op-eds, only two organizers of the protests under discussion were afforded a platform. So that's something like 1% of the columns in the wake of these protests that everyone agrees have had a vast social impact were written by the people who actually instigated them. Even as the Washington Post churned out numerous articles comparing today's domestic upheaval with that of the 1960s, veterans from past movements for racial justice, the Civil Rights Movement, the Black Power Movement, the Red Power Movement, or the Chicano Movement, none of them were given space to share the wisdom gained from their years of organizing against white supremacy. As a result, Graceffo notes, none of the op-eds published in the Times or the Post explored the idea of boycotts, strikes, direct action campaigns, or any other disruptive tactics protesters might use to leverage their power during this unprecedented moment. The op-ed sections of the Times and the Post were lacking not only in historical insight from organizers, but also in global insight. The police murder of George Floyd sparked uprisings against racism, police brutality, and state violence around the world, prompting countries to grapple with their own colonial pasts and with ongoing inequalities exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. But despite those outpourings of solidarity from protesters across Europe, Asia, Africa, and Latin America, the New York Times and the Washington Post presented exclusively U.S. perspectives. Activists weren't the only ones overlooked by the opinion sections of the nation's two leading papers. In the three weeks after George Floyd's murder, neither the Times nor the Post featured any op-eds written by the people who have suffered most directly at the hands of America's racist law enforcement, those who've experienced police brutality or people who've had loved ones murdered by police. Nor did they elevate the viewpoints of any people who are incarcerated even though many incarcerated writers have been sharing their experiences publicly for years. Corporate media's unwillingness to provide protesters a platform was very evident on those Sunday morning talk shows. Graceffo found that in the two weeks after Floyd's police murder, out of the 54 one-on-one and roundtable guests on all the networks, 63% were current or former government officials. The next most frequent guests were journalists, that was 24%, and three of the official guests... DHS Secretary Chad Wolf, U.S. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, and Attorney General William Barr denied the irrefutable fact that there is systemic racism in law enforcement. On all three of those occasions, those patently false claims went virtually unchallenged by journalists who posed the question as though it were a matter of opinion. 
Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, appeared on NBC's Meet the Press on June 7th, making her, across all networks, the only person affiliated with Black Lives Matter who was given time to speak. As Graceffo notes, the problem lies not only in which guests are afforded a platform, but also, and as a natural result, in the framing of the coverage and the questions that were asked. So throughout all the coverage, there was heavy focus on whether the protests were violent or nonviolent, rather than on the actual demands of the protesters. Protests that targeted property were rarely referred to in neutral terms. It was a subtle way of limiting the range of acceptable opinion. Most networks denounced the Trump administration's violent suppression of protesters, but the government officials responsible for deploying tear gas, tanks, and secret police were given ample airtime on network news to defend their use of these methods, while the protesters who supported destroying property, for example, were not given that time. This silencing makes clearer than anything how democracy dies in darkness is really only branding for corporate media who have zero intention of even acknowledging their gatekeeping role, much, much, much less handing the mic to the people who are pushing actual change. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. The coronavirus pandemic had already added difficulties to the 2020 census. Now the Census Bureau says workers will only have until September 30th to solicit responses, despite having previously established a deadline of October 31st. The maneuver follows the Trump White House's insertion of two new political appointments into the Census Bureau, whose job descriptions it won't make public, and Trump's order in late July calling for excluding undocumented immigrants from the census count used to apportion congressional representation. Given the transparently political nature of these actions, headlines like one in the New York Times expressing worry that they might lead to a botched count seem needlessly delicate. Here to talk about efforts to hijack the 2020 census and resistance to those efforts is longtime civil rights attorney and advocate Liz O'Young. She serves as a consultant on the census to community-based organizations and adjunct professor at Columbia University's Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race and New York University's Department of Social and Cultural Analysis. She joins us now by phone. Welcome back to Counterspin, Liz O'Young. Thank you. It's unfortunate that I'm back for these reasons. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, when we spoke with you in November of 2018, the Trump administration was trying to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census over the vehement objection of not just immigrant advocates, but statisticians and previous census directors The Supreme Court ultimately shot that down, though I'm reminded only by five to four. But what we're seeing now and this executive order in particular, it's it's just that same effort back again. Right. It is. But the Trump administration is using 
its abuse of its executive powers in a way that's even more direct by orders to the Census Bureau to do certain things, which is just going to wind itself back in the courts again. But I think what's even appalling is just the continual attempt to try to instill fear among immigrants in completing the census. This is yet another attempt after the community successfully rallied against getting the citizenship question off the census. With less than two months or three months, we are in August, September, October, left to complete the census. He tries yet again to instill fear in people in completing it. And what makes it outrageous, just simply outrageous, the abuse of power here is that the Census Bureau's own experts, their own seasoned, long-time employees, said in April of this year that they were not able to, because of COVID-19, complete the census in a timely and accurate way so that they requested that the deadline for self-completion be extended until October 31st. And then for this administration to not only, one, defy what the Supreme Court ruled in 2019 and try with directives to the Census Bureau to exclude undocumented aliens from the apportionment base, but then also to abruptly shorten the deadline from the extended one to October 31st because of the challenges of COVID-19, and then move it up to September 30th, which is less than a month and a half, what's approximately a month and a half away. When the Census Bureau's own people said in April, there's no way that they can do an accurate census, and so they wanted the deadline for self-reporting to be extended to October 31st, and they wanted the deadline for reporting to the president the apportionment numbers from the end of December to April 30th, 2021, that they would not have enough time to complete and get these results to the president whoever it is following this election, by December 31st. And they requested a extension until April 30th, 2021. And so to blatantly ignore the Supreme Court's ruling, ignore the Census Bureau's own employees' determination that it could not be done in an accurate and an efficient way is amazing, especially because This is a survey that is the most cited for statistics. It is a national survey. Businesses, governments, local cities, state, federal, all based information and planning based on the 2020 census. As critical to that is redistricting, an attempt to politicize it so that people do not complete the census, so that political lines can be drawn to favor one party and a complete obstruction of power and justice 
and all in the name of representative democracy. There's nothing more autocratic than this usurpation of power that both the Supreme Court and the people were successful in getting the citizenship question off the census. It's just outrageous. Well, and it sounds as though directing commerce, which runs the census, to exclude undocumented immigrants, that's just unconstitutional, isn't it? I mean, legally, it's a non-starter. And I do want to say that that doesn't mean it won't have an impact. But there's no way that that passes constitutional muster. The Constitution and the 14th Amendment are pretty clear about this, aren't they? They are. It's supposed to be a count of all persons living in the state. And you can turn a blind eye, but there are more than 11 million undocumented persons living in the United States. And they're contributing to the statistics that lead to the growth of businesses, as to planning, et cetera. I mean, they're very much an integral part of this country, you know, whether as essential workers and you name it, to keep this economy thriving. And so their numbers definitely should be counted as far as planning goals. So the Constitution is very clear that it is a count of all persons living in the states. And so and they are definitely persons. It's not like they didn't think about it, you know. They had thought about it. We'd been through the three-fifths of a person thing. There was an understanding that you needed to have an accurate picture of who was in the states, regardless of their, their citizenship status. It's not like they didn't think about it. Right, and it goes, again, to accuracy. It goes to civic participation, that all persons were interdependent. We are interconnected. The census is supposed to be apolitical, and there's a reason for that. You have to have reliable data. You have both Republican and Democrat businesses. You have, particularly now with health care, we are interdependent upon each other, and our survival and our health is dependent on a collective responsibility of everybody living in this country. And not to have an accurate count is shooting ourselves in the foot. Well, let me ask just a little about the mechanics of it, because pushing up the deadline, that concretely means that some people, and not just any people, but those people who are historically undercounted, those that are hardest to reach, there's the folks who maybe just won't get counted at all if we shorten up the time. And they're the ones that need to be counted because they're the ones that stand the most to lose from a loss of money from federal programs that they may benefit from. We're talking most specifically about small children. So many federal programs go to nutritional programs for children, Head Start, CHIP, Title I schools, you name it. And Similarly, there's sizable money dedicated for programs regarding housing. So low-income renters are at risk. We're talking about those with English language issues, people from rural areas, urban areas, densely populated areas, hard-to-reach communities. Also, the areas hit hardest by COVID-19, African and Latino Poor communities, mortality rate as a result of COVID-19, disproportionate to wealthier areas. And so they're being hit doubly by COVID-19. And then after an underreporting, not being able to receive critical services. And so 
to shortchange that when community-based organizations have relied on that information and broadcasted it to their community that you have until October 31st because of COVID-19 to complete the census. And now it's being changed, and who's going to get that knowledge out to the community? More confusion, Um, more confusion. More confusion, and more confusion leads to more distrust. There's already a great deal of skepticism about, is this information going to be confidential? You know, what's going to be done with this information, et cetera, et cetera. And with this administration and its record of deceit, you just don't know. Then to add to that changing deadline and rules, not even midway, you know what I mean? We're talking less than two and a half months originally, and then trying to, again, exclude undocumented from the census. It's a deliberate attempt to instill fear in everyone being able to participate in the most basic of civic responsibilities, and that's completing the census. Well, let me just ask you a mechanical question that a lot of folks might not know about. If the census workers can't, if they're shut down from getting to talk to people, from door knocking or from getting people to self-report, if that ends, they do use methods to kind of guesstimate the folks they didn't get to, and that can introduce another level of erasure, right? Erasure and inaccuracy. Yep. The more you try to use other mechanisms besides self-response, direct self-response, then it increases the level of inaccuracy, especially in places like New York City where it is so diverse. For instance, if people, because of COVID-19, are afraid to open their doors to strangers, knocking on their doors, enumerators, census enumerators, then one of the ways they do it is try to impute data. And they look at data in the area, socioeconomic data in the area. That's one thing that they can look at to try to impute who might live at this house, what race might live at this house, what age group might live at this house. And so you look at records, government records, but not Everyone has completed certain government records. The level of imputation becomes less and less reliable. And it's just unbelievable because a survey that is most cited by scientists, by business, by government, is going to be fraught with inaccuracy. And planning is all going to be based on inaccurate information. And that can just open up such a Pandora's box of error upon error upon error. Well, we we are outraged. We're like flabbergasted, but we're also in a way not surprised because this administration has telegraphed every move about this. They haven't hidden their racist and nativist priorities. So let's talk a little bit about the forces of resistance to these racist and anti-democratic efforts from the White House. There are lawsuits, there are legislators, there are groups. I mean, folks are ready to, to push back against this. They are ready. There is right now, and people should be supporting, efforts to get Congress to pass legislation that would make it very clear, because Congress has authority over the census, to extend the deadline of the results being reported to the president, whoever it is, end of December, to put in statute what the original request of the 
Census Bureau employees, experts were in April of this year to extend the statutory deadline from the end of December to April 30th, and then subsequently to get the numbers to state for pre-apportionment by the end of July. And so I hope that Congress will pass that and put this to rest. And in support of this legislation are four former Census Bureau directors, Republican and Democrat alike, who have said that it is impossible to complete the census given COVID-19 by the end of December and that these statutory deadlines must be extended in light of the horrific situation our country is dealing with. People are focused on surviving and not completing the census right now, and it's a very difficult time, and everyone recognizes that, but this administration everyone but this administration. Well, just finally, the word erasure gets thrown around, but this really is that. You know, this is an effort to disappear some people, you know, to to take them out of the mirror that we hold up to the country. You really can't underestimate the damage of that, uh, material damage, resource damage, but also a kind of like psychic damage, a kind of damage to our knowledge and our self-understanding, if you will. This is This is about erasure. You know, and it adds to the divisiveness that this country does not need right now. You know, I mean, we need to be united to fight COVID-19. We need to be united to fight institutional racism. And then to add this feeling of not counting, they're not included at a time when this country needs to come together. To add insult again to injury, the undocumented community is the one that our at the forefront with other essential workers, other food providers, delivery workers, et cetera, making this country run during a pandemic. And then to say they don't count, you know, they're invisible. I think one thing that you also pointed to, Janine, is we are heading towards a depression, maybe. Our economy in a major recession right now because of COVID-19. This is not the time at all to squander resources. And the effort this administration has gone through to waste so much time and money on lawsuits that are so obvious, but yet spending so many people's resources to fight is to me criminal. There are millions of people without jobs now. Small businesses are folding left and right. And this administration is, in the face of it all, just wasting so many of our resources on something that is so black and white in our Constitution. And the effort that it will go to politicize it is just shocking. We've been speaking with civil rights attorney and advocate Lizzo Young. She's a consultant on the census to community-based organizations. If you haven't already, you can fill out the census at my2020census.gov. Lizzo Young, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. You're welcome. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group, based in New York. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.